Can we just tell him that? Come on, with our worship, with our thanksgiving, with our words and with our lives, Lord, we tell you right now, you're great. And we're so wonderful. We're so grateful for your wonder, your mercy. We're so awed by your presence, God. Hallelujah. Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. What a great move and touch of the presence of God is in this place tonight. Praise God. Praise God. Do want to just, you may be seated, do want to just mention, uh, as Pastor Trevor did, of course, uh, if you've not signed up and you want to, please go downstairs and take a look at the different groups that are there. And group leaders, please make sure you go downstairs too after. That way, if people have questions or uh, whatever, they can be answered. Uh, but I am excited to see the, the excitement of the church at these groups. And we're going to have a great time this year as we launch them. Let's remember others. Amen. We're reaching for others in the world that don't know. We're pulling them out of the fire, but we're also reaching to others within loving people. Amen. So the postcards are back there. There's some out of the information booth. Grab that on the back. Write down people's names that you're praying for, that you're witnessing to. And uh, let's just continue uh, to minister to others. Praise God. Well, the Lord is good. I'm going to go ahead and dismiss our uh, different groups um, that have been meeting out on, you know, kids and um, teens. Of course, our nursery, thank you so much for that. Uh, all of those different groups, God bless you in Jesus' name. Well, glory, glory. And those of you that are staying in and, of course, online, if you would join me in the book of Matthew chapter 18. I'm just going to read one verse of Scripture, verse 7. Amen. Matthew 18 and verse 7. Praise God. King James reads, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. I want to read the same verse but from the New Living Translation, it's slightly different, and I'll explain as we move into the message. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting. And tonight, I'm starting a series called, uh, on forgiveness rather, and my message tonight is titled, Inevitable Offenses. Father, you are the living word, and I ask now that you would make my tongue the pen of a ready writer, that you would write your words upon our hearts, God. Speak your logos and your rima to your church tonight. Help us to apply and understand the scripture, God. Cause every hindrance to be rebuked and cast out and bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. God, I pray all of this and ask it in the majestic name of Jesus, and give you all the glory. And everyone said, Amen. One of the most significant incentives to prayer is when God answers your prayers. So as your prayers become reality, it obviously encourages you to pray more. You want to do it more. You, you experience what you Feel when you pray and you see God do something. And so that is a great incentive. It's not the only, but it's one of them. However, equally, one of the most significant obstacles or hindrances to receiving answered prayer is unforgiveness. The word offenses, as the King James put it, and temptations, as the New Living put it, stem from a Greek word that means to cast a stumbling block before one, words or deeds which entice someone to sin. God's word declares that offenses are inevitable. They will come. And then 
God allows at times people to come into our lives who seem to be experts at offending or tempting. Well, I suppose if it's inevitable that it's going to happen, might as well happen from the best, right? Turn to somebody next to you and say, you're going to get offended. I just hope it isn't me that does it. <laughs> there are things in life that are going to offend, tempt us to sin. Offenses are inevitable. You, you can't change that. I, I, I wish you could. I wish this verse didn't indicate that. <clears throat> it must needs be that offenses come. I, I wish it didn't say that. Why does it must needs be that offenses come? Why is it important? Well, we can argue all day over whether or not that should be that way or not, but the fact is it's inevitable. So here's what we have to do. We have to deal with the reality that since it's inevitable, how are we going to react? You see, we can't change the fact that offenses are going to come. We can't change the fact that temptations are going to come. What we can change is how we react and respond when they do. So it's not whether you'll be tempted. It's not whether you'll be offended. It is what are you going to do when that moment happens. So let's begin by answering this first question. From where or whom do offenses originate? Now I've got a, a lot to preach on this one point, but I'm going to really simplify it. They come from people. <laughs> I mean, if, if you want the short version, you know, and go get your hamburger, they come from people. People offend. We often blame the devil, and certainly he can offend and he can tempt, and he can, you know, possess people to do the same, but it comes from people. It comes from sometimes people we love. But again, it's inevitable. Here's what we have to do. We, we need to make sure that we don't give the offense or the temptation more power than it deserves. By the time I finish this message tonight, I pray that what I just said is going to make a little bit more sense. But a lot of times we spend time giving the offense the center stage, the temptation, and that's not what we should be doing. Because they are going to come. But we should instead be glorifying and thanking God. And, and I'm going to get into that a little bit. And, and let me kind of explain it this way. Uh, would you agree with me that the Bible is clear that there is an accuser, uh, the devil, you know, that serpent, right? That, that he's there, right? We, we understand he's there, right? We, it's, it's, would you also agree then that, you know, Jesus has all power over him? You know, Scripture says that, right? Well, let's just use one writer. He's the writer of almost half the New Testament. That's Paul uh, writing these epistles. He spends, I think it's like maybe 12 times, five or it's either 10 or 12 times that he mentions Satan, okay, and, and, and the devil's devices. But about 500 times he mentions God in his epistles. So let's recognize that offenses come. You know, let's recognize there's an enemy that, that is behind this to still kill and destroy. But let's recognize there's a God that's greater. Does that make sense? Let's not give the offense center stage. Let's not give the temptation center stage. Instead, let's give the God who can deliver us from it, help us through it, help us to forgive and, and grow from it. Let's give God center stage. So in order to understand this, we've got to dig a little bit deeper into the full context of Matthew 18, so I hope you got your Bibles open. This is a Bible study. Let's take a look here and uh, discover some things about offenses and forgiveness and the kingdom and all that, that uh, pertains here. Beginning at verse 1, Matthew 18, and I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. It says, About that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, and I think Luke and Mark also both record this uh, event. Um, 
Luke, I think, just says he knew that this was what they were thinking, and so he began to explain. But I love what Jesus does here. Instead of answering a question directly, he first calls a little child to him and puts that child among them. Now, this is important because children uh, were, were to be seen and not heard, you know. They were to be these little mini adults, and, and, and uh, they, they were the lowest class of society uh, because they, they offered nothing to society. They, they, were, they were too young to, to you know, uh, work, and, and, you know, and, and then when they got old enough, they were turned into workers. And, and so, you know, for Jesus to use a child, he's, he's giving them an illustration that's changing a, a mindset that they've had for a, a, quite a while. They love children, don't get me wrong. The, uh, the, these people still to this day do you know, love children, but they just seen them as a lower class. And so he puts them, this child among them. Verse 3, then he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So he really doesn't answer the question directly. But he's telling them how to get into this kingdom. Verse 4, so anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom. Now he answers the question. You want to be great in the kingdom? Then humble yourself and become like this little child. You say, what's that going to do with offenses? Well, we're in the context, so just hang tight. Verse 5, And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. Wow. But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin... It would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And now we come to the verse that I had used as my text. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin? Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? Let's keep reading. Verse 8, so if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both your hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. Now, in another instance, children wanted to come to Jesus, and the disciples tried to keep them from him. And he said, no, 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 let them come, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. So this is now twice that Jesus has used a child to illustrate something about his kingdom. Okay? What he's saying here is, in order to get into my kingdom, you've got to be trusting, you've got to be humble, and he's really giving them an illustration of what it means to be born again. Okay? You ever heard the phrase, babe in Christ? You know, when somebody first experiences that? Well, that's because it's a newness of it. It's, it's the first time that they've really experienced this, this element of, wow, I, I'm, I'm a new creature in Christ. You know, they might be 50 years old, but they're experiencing something for that first time. And you ever see, do you remember when you received the Holy Spirit, what it felt like? And man, you're just on fire for God and excited and, you know, you believe everything and anything and you're just ready to go, Right. Well, what he's saying is, you've got to become like that to get into the kingdom. Children are impressionable, right? By the way, that's why we need to be very careful. You know, um, I, I, I joke with my kids when they were growing up, and, and you know, I, I joke with children today, but, man, if they ask me a direct question, I, I need to be honest with them, you know, because they're impressionable. But at the same time, what, what he's saying to us here is, like that child, Believe who I am. Believe in what I'm saying. Understand that I've come into the world to, to bring salvation. Does that make sense? Okay. Jesus goes on explaining these kingdom principles in verse 5 again. He says, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. That's a powerful verse. So in other words, if I treat others the way Jesus treats me, it's the same as if I'm treating Jesus. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? 
Not only are we to become like little children with complete faith in God and trust in God, but we're to welcome others. That's awesome. And when we do, of course, we're welcoming Jesus. Verse 6, Jesus says, But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. This is a very, um, very uh, harrowing imagery here that Jesus uses. A, a millstone weighs about 500 pounds. And it, it, it sets upon like this circular thing that they would grind uh, um, uh, grapes, they would grind down uh, grain, they would crush grapes, they would crush olives, and, and uh, usually a donkey or animals, sometimes people, but would, would be, you know, pushing this around and around and around as it, as it grounds, grinds the uh, fruit or the grain or whatever down, right? And Jesus is saying, I'm going to take, it would be better for you to have one of those tied around your neck. Well, let's just be honest. If a 500-pound weight gets tied around your neck, you're thrown to the sea, you're going straight to the bottom. That's a gruesome death. You know, you would sink immediately. <laughs> and if that is, is better than what Jesus has planned for those who offend, I don't want to find out what it is. Okay? And then, of course, the verse that, that we got to. So we're building up to this context. So Jesus is laying some kingdom principles here. We're a part of a kingdom. And in this kingdom, offenses are going to come sometimes. Temptations are going to come to us sometimes. And all of us had to become like a child to enter the kingdom, but we've got to maintain a certain element of that childlike faith to even continue. We should be careful not to become cynical. Especially when temptation or offenses comes. And so the words of Jesus then are very solemn and straightforward that those who cause offense, those who tempt others to sin, are in danger of harsh judgment from God. But we too must heed this warning that we don't somehow tempt others or lay a stumbling block or offend others when they're trying to find who Jesus is. Amen? We, could, we should not put stumbling blocks in front of other people. Like those disciples trying to prohibit the children from coming to Jesus. We've got to be careful that we don't make Christianity distasteful to others. I don't want people to see a version of Jesus that's warped by my anger or my bitterness or whatever. I don't want to be in danger of his judgment. I don't want to be at the receiving end of any of God's woes. Woe unto him. I don't want to cause someone to stumble. But again, I have to then ask, why did Jesus say they're inevitable? Why did he indicate that they must needs come? Why are offenses inevitable? Well, simply put, offenses Stumbling blocks, temptation, whatever you want to call it, it's inevitable, inevitable because we live in a fallen world. Thank you, Adam. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eve. Appreciate it. It was perfect. We live in a fallen world. It's inevitable. Now that doesn't make it excusable. I'm not trying to excuse it, especially sin. But it does help us to understand why it's inevitable. You've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Well, you know, we have the power to turn that around and say, healed people, heal people. Forgiven people, forgive people. You can keep going on, but you get the point. And so the fact that they're going to come, we can't change that. But what we can change is go back to some of that childlike faith. You know, children believe that, that in the impossible a lot of times. 
You know? I remember the first time one of my kids handed me a toy that was broken, and as dad, I can see this is, you know, it's not just broken, this is destroyed. You know? But their faith was daddy can fix it. Bring it to dad. He can fix anything, right? Well, we know that we can bring a brokenness of our world, a, a destruction that has happened in our world. We can bring that to him, and what can he do with it? He can, he can mend it. He can fix it. He's the brokenhearted mender, right? He's the healer, the forgiver of all iniquity, healer of all diseases. So, so we can bring that to our daddy, and, and he's not having to say, well, i got to run to Walmart real quick to fix it and buy a new one. No, he can take the broken. And so maybe the offenses come so that we can reveal Jesus. Could it be that our ability to overcome the temptation, to refuse to sin, to forgive the offender, is an opportunity for us to reveal Jesus to the world. In Proverbs 25, verse 4, it says, Remove the impurities from silver, and the sterling will be ready for the silversmith. There was a silversmith that was asked, how did he know when the silver had reached its place of perfection, its place of purity. And his answer was, when I see my reflection in the silver. And what happens is, the impurities come up in the, in the, in the boiling process, and, and, and they come to the top, the dross, as it's called, and, and he has this, this um, scraper thing, and he'll scrape off, and he's got a pan that he puts it in, he's scraping it off, and cleaning it each time. And, and once he can look in and see his reflection, he knows it's reached its state of purity. Oh, come on now. The silversmith might be just, quote unquote, allowing offenses to come because there's some impurities in us that he's trying to bring to the surface so that he can scrape them off so he can see his reflection in us. Hey, you've heard it said, you may be the only Bible some people ever read. That's becoming more and more true as we draw closer to the coming of the Lord. I'm thankful that the Bible is still the best-selling book in the world, but, but more and more people are coming to church and they don't have any kind of church background at all. A few years ago, the President of the United States said, we're no longer a Christian nation whether or not he was basing that on accurate facts or not, the fact is you can see trends and things that are happening. And so when we show authentic Christ to people, and despite offenses, despite temptations, we're revealing him. And so maybe offenses come so we can do that. Just this week, I had a situation where I was dealing with something, and two or three things in a row, what I was dealing with was people that kept blaming others and, and not willing to take blame for themselves. I had gone to a, a retail issue situation, and, and there poor customer service, and so these three or four things all just right in a row, literally on the same day. And I, I go outside, and I, I notice that uh, part of the uh, pavement is, is in the pile of snow that's melting over by where I park my truck. So I, I text the, the guys that plow our driveway, and I said, hey, I said, um, took a picture of it, sent it to him, and, and he immediately was like, you know, oh, well, sorry about that, but, you know, it's not covered under our contract, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, this is like the fifth thing. And I just, oh, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, that's what you're going to say, you know. And I'm just, you know, angry at this point, you know, and, and part of it, you know, because of five other things. Well, in the course of our conversation back and forth, he finally said, hey, I'm not trying to pass any blame off. I'll come out and look at it. And so we agreed. We actually met yesterday. And, you know, through the course of this, just continuing our, our texting, and then when he got here, 
I just looked at him and I said, hey, I just I apologize for, for, you know, kind of making you feel like it was your fault and, and you know, all this. And he goes, no, no, I apologize. I should have, you know, said this thing at first. And it was great. And, and they do a great job keeping our driveway plowed when it's the time to come. But I thought about it and I thought, you know what, that gave me a chance to recognize something had offended, but then a, a pop opportunity to make it right. Right? A few years ago, there was a, a matter, I think Donnie was here, he was working on something, and, and there was something going on, and uh, if you know me, you know I can get heated a little bit. Um, and, and this matter just kept building and building, and I get, kept getting passed on to, you know, this person, that person, having to retell the story. Of about the fourth time I'm finally getting passed to another tech or manager or whatever, I was, I was livid. I'm like, this, this is not working, you know. And I'll never forget, the gentleman said, sir, he says, you are the first person to get angry with me but not swear. I'm like, I'm glad that's a good thing, but I want my problem fixed, <laughs> you know. But again, when these offenses come, we have an opportunity to reveal Christ, Maybe the temptations or the offenses come so they can reveal something inside of us that we need to deal with. Uh-oh. About to get real up in here. You see, maybe what's being brought to the surface, you see, we don't really see the world as it is sometimes. We see the world as we are. Sometimes we're looking through foggy lenses, you know, and sometimes those things such as anger or bitterness or contempt or unforgiveness or hatred or prejudice or whatever, it, it's coming up because God is saying, there's something in you I want to get out. And in His mercy, He's allowing inevitable offenses to come. Say, maybe if you just deal with this, we'd get this cleaned up. Hmm. You see, God can reveal Himself through us as we repent and as we forgive and as we seek forgiveness. Watch this. The thing that stands in between the God in us and the world outside us, others, is our impurities. And if they can get brought to the surface and cleaned, the more we'll reveal Christ. You see, those impurities prevent His light from shining through us. But His forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others removes those impurities. And then His light will be revealed and His darkness dissipated. A few years ago, I read about um, uh, lighthouses and back in the day when they had to uh, keep them, you know, there was somebody there that lived there that had to keep them clean. I think now they have automatic cleaners and other ways and, of course, various and sundry other technologies now. But there would be somebody that would have to keep that glass clean. Because as the light penetrated through it, just even some of those tiniest specks of dust could, could limit how far that light would go. And so after a storm had blown in or, or, you know, whatever, they would have to always go up and make sure that things were clean so that the light continued to shine. Well, that's kind of what the essence is here. I don't want anything to block the light of Jesus for others to see. Let, let me kind of explain it this way. If a person lies under pressure, what it's meaning is that there's something deep within them that, that, that they're doing that, and maybe God's trying to bring that out. The temptation comes then to reveal what's inside so that God can bring that lying to the surface and remove it. Here's what we don't need to do when that happens. If God brings something to the surface, if God brings that conviction, don't beat yourself up. Okay? Don't cover it up. Just repent, confess it, and forsake it. God in His mercy is bringing it to the surface so that you have a chance to repent. 
forgive, seek forgiveness, and then thank God you're becoming more pure like Him. You see, because they come to reveal deep things in us. And no matter what it is, if it's, if it's unfaithfulness in giving, if it's, if it's you know, uh, uh, anger, no matter what the issue is, whatever it might be, it's, it's coming and God will allow certain things to come to test us. Here's the sad reality. A lot of times we repress that. We push it back down. I remember one time, and I've only done it one time, and I will do it again if the Lord tells me to, but I'm not going to unless he tells me to, because he did then, and, and if he does again, I'll do it again. But I felt to preach a very convicting message, and I knew people were going to want to pray after, but as people stood to come to the altar for the altar call, I closed the altars. I said, nope, they're closed for indefinitely. And for two or three weeks, it just there was no altar call. And, I, and God kept giving me these convicting messages. And what God spoke to me, and I spoke to the church at that time, was a lot of times we, we come to an altar call and we pray ourselves out from under the conviction that God preached us under. And we don't deal with that. We repress it. We come up to look good. Oh, I'm going to come up and cry a little bit. And thank you, Jesus. Amen. I want to get a hamburger tonight and a shake. Amen. Praise God. All right. How you doing, buddy? Mm-hmm. So I just closed the altars. I tell you what, when the time came that we reopened them again a couple, three weeks later, I didn't have to give an altar call. I just said they're open, and bam, it was just, why? Because people realize, you know what, I, I want to make sure that I'm not repressing something. God's bringing this for a reason. I want to deal with it. You see, this is the merciful thing about God. He won't make us feel like an idiot if we flunk the test. He won't stand us up in front of class and say, well, isn't he a moron? You know what he'll do? In his mercy, he'll just say, we're going to take it again. You didn't pass it the first time, but you know what? I'm going to try a different angle. Let me, let me kind of give you an example of that. Now, this example is, is a harsh one because it ends a little bit negatively, but this is Old Testament, so it sometimes does end negatively. Moses, when the Lord first calls him, one of his arguments to the Lord for why he can't be used is he has a stutter. The desert has flavored his tongue. He, he, uh, he can't speak well, right? And, and, and I love God's reply, uh, who made man's mouth? I mean, I'm, come on, I'm turning your hand withered and back whole again. I'm turning your staff into a snake. Don't you? Th I'm speaking from a burning bush that ain't being consumed. Don't you think I can handle your, your speech impediment? <laughs> right? Finally, you know, and I can see God, you know, and I'm not trying to paint God out as a frustrating God, but I can see God finally says, okay, fine. Take care of him with you. I'll give you a pass. You flunked it, but I'll give you a pass this time. Isn't it interesting that the second time they needed water, God told him to speak to the rock, brought him full circle back around to the issue that he had dealt with, and in his anger at the people, he struck it a second time. God in his mercy still gave water, but said, because you didn't trust me, you won't go in. You'll see the promised land, but not go in. Well, again, that kind of ends negatively, but, you know, again, it's Old Testament, but Here's what we have to understand. God will, will bring us through. And, and let me just say this. If you're dealing with some of the same things over and over and over, I want you to stop looking at that like, man, I'm a failure, I'm negative, I'm not going to do any good. I want you to, to create a new pathway in your brain tonight and say, you know what? This year I'm going to make a difference in that area. All of you right now are thinking about something that has probably bothered you, offended you, and, and that you have dealt with, and, and you're probably ready to see the end of that. Well, how about this year we make it where that happens? Isn't that a good idea? See, there's two reasons why we should embrace the offense. Not, a, not suppress it, not repress it, but embrace it. Here's why we should do that. Ready? Number one, we want to be pure. 
If God is bringing anger to the surface, it's because he wants me to be pure. If he's bringing bitterness or unfaithfulness or whatever, it's because he wants me to, you know, be the opposite of those things. So I want him to clean me. I want to be pure. And number two, I don't want to keep taking the test over and over. I want to grow. One of our core values is to grow in faith. I want to do that. I want to be able to turn and look and say, you know what? I was here a year or two or three ago, and I'm here now. I've seen growth. A lot of times when I'm talking to somebody, a couple or an individual, I'll ask them what's called the scaling question on a scale of 1 to 10. 10 being the best of what you want to be and 1 being the worst. Where do you find yourself on that scale? Some people, well, 4, 5, 6, 7, whatever the number might be. I'll then say to them, what do we got to do to get from, let's say, a five to a five and a half? What's a simple step you can take to start moving that needle forward? Well, it's the same thing biblically. It's the same thing of looking at this saying, you know what? Okay, anger is my issue. I'm going to look up some verses on anger. I'm going to look up some verses on wrath. When, when that comes to the surface, instead of letting it manifest, I'm going to thank you, Jesus, that you're purifying me through this, and I'm not going to get angry about that. Or if bitterness, or, or whatever that is. Does that make sense? By the way, Jesus embraced our sin. That's where I get the word embrace from. Watch this. Philippians 2, verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's one of our verses this year. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robber to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In other words, Jesus chose to embrace the flesh uh, manifestation that he was to take on our sin so that we could become his righteousness. And notice what happened. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things heaven, things in earth, things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise God. I want to pass the test. Jesus became our sin, our offense, so that we could become his righteousness. You find that, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17 through 21, 21 specifically, but you find that in that passage. Now, remember, let me just say this, embracing sin, or excuse me, embracing the offense does not mean that we excuse sin. Now, I'm not saying that at all, you know, we, we, don't, we don't do this so that grace abounds. God forbid, of course. Instead, let us learn again to be like Jesus. Because in the flesh, he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. I love how, I think it's in the book of Romans, it says, and he overcame sin in the flesh. That lets us know that he struggled just like we did with all the fleshly temptations and offenses. And if you don't think Jesus had opportunity to be offended, stick around after service and I'll run down the list with you. You know? Philip, how long have I been with you? Do you even know who I am? You know? I mean, Jesus spent three and a half years one-on-one -on -one with his, his disciples and his apostles, and they're still confused just before they get the Holy Ghost. Is the kingdom of Israel coming now? I mean, it's like, oh! Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. Thomas doubted him. They all ran. John came back, but they all ran. His own rejected him. His own family. Some of you are reading the, the story in Mark through about this time. Some of his own family rejected him. He 
He faced temptations and offenses, and he overcame it in the flesh. You know what that tells me? There's, see, there's two parts to the incarnation of God. Incarnation is the big word for what happened in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was God, verse 14, and the Word became flesh. That's incarnation. God became flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's the incarnation. I'm not trying to act like you don't know that, but I'm just making sure you understand. So the, so the first part of incarnation is God becoming man. The second part of incarnation is us being filled with the Spirit of God in which Ephesians says we're filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, in our flesh, we have the same thing Jesus had to overcome sin, to overcome offenses. Well, he was God. Exactly. But he overcame sin in the flesh, not with his godness. Am I making sense? With it? I'm not trying to stretch that too far. I'm not trying to say that we are like God or we are little gods. What I'm saying is we can overcome sin in the flesh too. We can overcome offenses too if we want to. If we embrace it, if we learn from it and become more pure. If we embrace what's happened and then deal with that and take it and say, I'm going to forgive and I'm going to seek forgiveness and I'm going to let whatever is, is the dross that's coming up be cleansed from me and show forgiveness and mercy so that I receive forgiveness and mercy. By doing that, you know what happens? It shows the world that our salvation is authentic. It's not just a religion. It's not just a checkbox for us. Okay, Wednesday night, check, I went. You know, I came on Sunday, check, boom. You know, I gave my tithes, check, boom. It's not just that. It's, it's authentic because I'm living what he said to do. You see, when you're born again, God gives you a new perception of things. You're able to see through the eyes of faith. You're able to see through his eyes. In fact, you're able to comprehend. The Holy Spirit begins to lead and guide you into all truth. But if you refuse to deal with offenses and offenders, you'll lose your spiritual perception. And let me prove it. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall need to be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those things, by the way, begin at verse, I think, 5, and that's adding to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and so forth. There's eight qualities being added into you uh, verses, I think, 3 and 4 talk about, you know, that nature of Christ. So it's an it's, uh, example of being born again. And so as you add to this, you know, the fruit of the Spirit into your life and these are abounding in you, you're not going to ever be barren. You're not going to be unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But look at verse 9. But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten he was purged from his old sins. The last thing you add there in Second Peter is to add Charity or love to brotherly kindness. Love there is agape. It's unconditional. Unconditional love, not expecting anything in return. Jesus gave. How many people has he died for that has sped in his blood and, and want nothing to do with him? There's 8 billion people in the world now. How many billions have lived since that time and have not chosen the narrow way? have not chosen to be born again, yet He still died for them. To me, that's the biggest tragedy when we stand before God and His blood would have covered their sins too. His mercy would have forgiven them too if they would have only asked. And so, I don't want to not add to my faith virtue and all those things that I add. I don't want to not be diligent. I don't want to become blind. I don't want to become nearsighted. I don't want to forget where He's brought me from. I want to reveal Him to others. In fact, if you're, if you're there in 1 Peter, uh, let, let, let's go on. I, I didn't have it in my notes, but I can find it real fast here. Uh, 1 Peter uh, 1 and verse 9. Uh, let's start at verse 10 there. Watch this. Okay. Hallelujah. Or is it second? I'm sorry, second, Peter. I said first. And I'm going to the wrong one. 
Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Watch this. If you got it open, you're about to see it with me. If you haven't already, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. Titus 1-2 says God cannot lie. Hebrews and, and ex, um, Numbers also say it's impossible for him to lie. If I do what the Bible says to do, and I deal with offenses, and I deal with the dross in my own life that's coming up, I'll never fall. And, look at verse 11, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Anybody want to hear him say, well done? Then deal with those things as they come up in your life. When offenses come, do not become offended. Keep your conscience clear. Keep your vision clear. Being offended will destroy spiritual perception. People who allow offense to remain in their life may also struggle with a host of other things, anger and loving others and staying in the church, and, and they'll backslide, and unfortunately, they'll blame others. It was the church's fault. It was this person's fault, when really it was something within them that they would not deal with. And, and please, I'm, Jesus himself said, woe to those by whom the offense come. You've heard testimonies from this pulpit that of people that have been hurt in church, and, and, I, and I'm not saying just get over it, but what I am saying is as people do begin to heal, mm, you can either choose to heal or stay hurt. You know, when we stand before God, at, at the white throne judgment, there seems to be verses that indicate to me that, that we reign with him, judge with him. And I can't imagine that a gavel is going to be in my hand to pronounce judgment. Um, even in my glorified state as, as an eternal being with him. And especially since the Bible says he's the righteous judge and he judges the whole earth alone. But here's what I think it means. I think there may be people who stand before God at the white throne judgment. Well, God, I was offended, or I was this, or I have this excuse, or I have this reason. And whatever they bring up, there's going to be a host of people that God can say, well, this person over here, that person over here, they went through the same thing you went through, and they made it. They chose to not be offended. They chose to forgive. They chose to heal. Unforgiveness will warp all of your perceptions of yourself and of others. Unforgiveness will warp your feelings about who you should be in Christ and what you think other people feel about you. It'll warp your perception about how you see your relationship with God. It will keep you from seeing things clearly. You might as well have something tied around your eyes because you're not going to see properly. Unforgiveness will make all of your decisions unreliable and cause you to look at yourself from an offended viewpoint. Unforgiveness clouds your spiritual vision until you can't see or hear what God wants you to do. Then you stumble around, confused in the darkness. So is there an answer? Yes, there is. Forgiveness is the answer. Forgiveness is the key that sets you free from the prison of offense. Now this series we're going to dive into forgiveness. It's a hard subject. Because so often when we forgive, there's pain that's been caused. There's hurt that's been caused. There's offense that's been caused. But if you'll forgive, it's the key that sets you free from the prison of offense. So tonight as we begin this series, I ask you to take the key, put it in the door, and be like Jesus. He forgave. He forgave Thomas who doubted. Peter who denied. And I firmly believe if Judas would have found him. Jeremy, I think you were preaching one time, Pastor Jeremy, and you said something about, you know, you can choose repentance or the rope, you know. 
And, and God, if only he would have chosen repentance. Instead of throwing the money back at the priest, if only he'd have you know, waited you know, three days and found Jesus. Jesus forgave Israel, his own people who rejected him. Proof of that is in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God and salvation to the Jew first. The very ones that rejected him, he gave them the first 120, the first 3,000, the first bunch of people, thousands of people throughout the book of Acts until you, you get to Acts 8 where you have an Ethiopian eunuch and then Acts 10 where you have a, a, a centurion. You know, hundreds of, you know, possibly hundreds of thousands of Jews saved initially. Why? Because he forgave, because he loves. Jesus forgave you and me. And the Bible says of all iniquity. How many of you have seen a can of Lysol recently? Kills 99.9% .9 of germs. So I always spray two and I crisscross them. That way, you know, just in, right? <laughs> you know, 99.9 .9 plus 99.9, .9, I should be good. <laughs> that, that .1 I'm glad God doesn't forgive me of 99.9% .9 of my iniquity. I'm glad that when I prayed and said, Lord, would you forgive me? Yes, I will, except for that one little thing, that point one thing over here. Sure glad he didn't do that. Amen. Let's stand together. As we close out this Bible study tonight, I want us to close with prayer and ask God to help us that we would obey his word. Jesus, I have done your will to teach your word tonight, and now I pray that I and all of us would do your will to apply it. It is hard. It is difficult when offenses come, when hurts and frustrations and temptations and all of these things come upon us. But God, through you, we can do all things by your strength. So give it to us tonight, and throughout this series, help us to answer the questions we need in Jesus' name. God bless you. Again, if you did not and want to, please uh, step downstairs and sign up with some of the groups. There are a lot of different groups available. Uh, starting, Some of them start this month, some of them uh, a couple months from now, but get down there and take a look at that. Uh, there's information on all the different tables. And of course, if you're a group leader, please, if you would be down there too, to assist. God bless you in Jesus' name. Let's be the church.